we are continuing on in our series that we have entitled Called. Uh, week five, if I have the math right, uh, week five, we're going to be Matthew chapter five today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter five is where we'll be hanging out this morning. Uh, again, it, man, it's such an honor to be with you this morning. We've got uh, crazy stuff happening all over the campus. We are um, in a lot of ways returning to whatever form of normal we, we can uh, in this season. Um, and so I've already been down with our high school students and got smoked in ping pong. Uh, thanks, Jack Sanborn. And, uh, and then now I've come up here, and so hopefully you'll be kinder to me than Jack was on the ping pong table. Uh, so, hey, if you've been around me at all, you've, my family, uh, we, we live fairly close. Uh, my, my folks live in the Memphis area, and so uh, they, they're up here quite a bit. And I've been, they've been here. You might have seen them before. Uh, if, you, if you've ever heard me talk about my family, you know that I'm the oldest of three. So I am the oldest. I've got a younger sister and a younger brother. I brought a picture with me just to help you visualize. Everybody, one, two, three, aw. Aw, right? So uh, th- this is the jacket that I was wearing right there. So I only have one good suit. Um, and so, and I brought it today. What a joy. So um, that is me in the middle. This is at our wedding. And then uh, my sister Bailey on the left. And my brother Grayson, I know you, you may not be able to see him, um, uh, on the right. Uh, he is, he is uh, intimidating, to say the least. So uh, I, I show you that because I want, I want to tell you a story. My sister and I, Bailey on the left, we didn't really have a whole lot of issues growing up. To be honest with you, um, there, there were very few times where we just had this, like, mom or dad had to get in the middle of it, right? We, we were fairly cool. We had our run-ins, our arguments here and there. We had our disagreements, things that they'd have to referee or step into. But on the whole, Bailey and I were fairly, um, were fairly cool. The one on the right, even seeing his picture, I just, I'm ready to, I'm ready to pounce, man. Now, my brother and I, uh, Grayson, uh, was a completely different story. I'll just be honest with you. We, I knew where all of his buttons were, and I pressed them early and often. Uh, my argument back was that he made them way too easy to press. He, he made himself an easy target, a position which I still hold to this day. Um, but I, he and I were just oil and water, and nothing could bring out the anger, the frustration, the just, just deep-seated bitterness like touch football in the backyard. Uh, when I tell you that we, we drew a crowd in our neighborhood, it wasn't because everyone loved to play football. It's because they wanted to see what would happen. Uh, because he and I were always going to be at odds. I was going to mess with him. He was going to call me a name. I was going to punk him out, whatever. But I'm, our property value suffered tremendously during those years um, because of my family. But it, we, we had these arguments, these touch football, just, just referees. You know, my mom always had to end up being the referee in more ways than one, right? Because that would always produce an argument, a fight, a problem that would have to be, uh, have to be resolved. And as my mom kind of navigated that. She did so gracefully, um, and I, I appreciate what she did, but she always had two rules. The first rule, never go to bed angry. Good advice for really anybody, any walk of life, whether you're married, you have kids, a sibling, whatever. But the second one was the much harder rule. It's the last three words that any sibling wants to hear while they're angry. Hug your brother. 
If I'm allowed to hug my brother while I throw him out of the window, then I am totally okay. Uh, but, but the last thing that I want to do in that moment is to pull my brother in close as if I really love him. Because that is, I, I, am, I am so beyond hugging my brother. But that was the rule. Why was that the rule? Because there's something naturally disarming about a hug. It's really difficult to maintain your level of anger or frustration or bitterness while you're bringing someone in. There's, there's something about an embrace that is naturally disarming. And my mom knew that, and he would bring the tensions down, the pressures down, and uh, it, w- it would allow us to kind of make ourselves vulnerable enough to where we could make progress in figuring out who owes who what and who went wrong here and who said what and all of that. But it started with hug your brother. Today, you will hear what might be one of the most unpopular messages in the history of our church. And I'm not talking about money. You'll hear something today that might offend you, might upset you, might bother you, might feel a little bit awkward or unsettling to you. And the reason for my fear, I'm not trying to just tell you that this is going to be a horrible morning, but the reason for my fear that it's going to do that to you is because the text we're looking at today does that to me. So whatever anger that, or, or, or bitterness or whatever might arise out of what we talk about today, trust me, I did it for seven days. Uh, And so the 30 minutes that we're going to be together in it, I promise, will pale in comparison to how I struggled this week with it. Because today, we're talking about anger, bitterness, disunity, division. And as I say those words, there's probably several different sentiments, several different feelings in the room. As soon as those words come up, some of you, you've already located the closest exit. You're like, I'm just not interested today. Like, this is not what I came here for. We already sang the blessing. I'm good. I'm going to go hit Cracker Barrel, and you guys can have it. And to that, I would say, me too. Uh, I totally understand. Like I said, I've done this for a week. And so whatever level of of discomfort you feel, uh, try studying it from like 12 different angles this week. Others might have already made a mental kind of note of who, who might need to hear this message. As soon as I say that, you're like, oh, you know, I don't know if I need that, but my sister, I'm going to send her that YouTube link. Maybe my neighbor, or maybe it's somebody at work, you're like, oh, bitterness? Yeah, that's for them. And I would just tell you, my words, thoughts, actions will never mean as much to them as yours do. And so allow the Lord to do something in your heart today. And maybe for some of you, you've kind of mentally checked out. You're like, I... I, I feel like I'm okay there. I thought you were going to talk about money, and so I'm really glad that we're going this direction because I'm good. Sure, I, people cut me off in traffic, but I'm fine, right? And to that, I would say, man, congratulations. Way to go. I would love to talk to you afterward about the upcoming election. I'd love to get your thoughts on politics and the coronavirus right now. I'd really love to hear how you've handled that. Whatever boat you find yourself sailing today, I do hope that you'll lean in just for a moment, open your heart, open your mind, work with me as we work through scripture together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 is where we will read verse 21. Jesus saying, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be, ang- shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Incredibly encouraging words to start our morning together uh, this morning. That one doesn't make it on the fish or Caleb uh, nearly as often. Uh, Verse 23, therefore, here's the implication. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And here's where Jesus takes a turn that might leave us in a a problem this morning. Verse 25 says, make friends quickly with your opponent. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with them on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Because truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Again, incredibly encouraging and uplifting words, but Jesus goes directly at the heart of the matter. He begins by drawing this really kind of peculiar comparison, if we're honest, uh, and and somewhat troubling uh, in the sense that he takes a familiar commandment, uh, one of the big ten, and uh, he, he, he draws it out, kind of teases it out a little bit and brings it down to more of a practical level because murder was not necessarily something that was super common, uh, but anger is. And so he, he takes it down to this level where uh, he, he kind of equates the two, he compares them. But I want to be careful because I, I want to make sure we understand Jesus is not equating anger and murder. He's not saying they are the same thing. Um, there, there is a, a significant difference between the two. And I would tell you, uh, he's not saying if you get mad at that person who cut you off on I-65 this morning, um, then you might as well take him out back and bury him. Uh, that, that's not what he is saying at all. Uh, and, and just for the record, I'd rather every single one of you be angry with me than one of you murder me. Um, I would prefer the first um, every day. And so um, they're not the same thing. What he is saying is that they both arrive at the same destination. They both arrive at a sinful place. They both produce the same result, which is a heart in need of repentance, a heart in need of redemption. But why does Jesus take this approach? The Sermon on the Mount, looking at Jesus' first big kind of moment of preaching, obviously the intimidating thing for me is analyzing a sermon from Jesus himself. Um, but why does, he, why does he, he go this direction? Why, why does this make it into the, 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 the big sermon for the day? Why does he even make that comparison? I think there's really two primary reasons. The first, I think he's really trying to clarify the intent of the law. The Pharisees, as was their game, were were just really significantly interested in making sure they knew exactly where the line was. How close can I get to it? What what, what can I do? What what, what is the actual sin? Therefore, I can know what's allowed and what's not. Interested in following the letter of the law, and Jesus comes in and reveals to them the spirit of the law. No, 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 no. It's not just the, the, whether you act upon what's in your heart. It's why would you keep that in your heart at all? There's a spirit behind that law. I don't, it's not just so that you don't murder. It's so that you don't hold that in your heart because your heart was never intended to hold that. It's clarifying what it is that's the real reason for something like this. But two, I believe it's also... Because Jesus knew the dangers of a bitter heart. 
He knew the dangers of a bitter heart. He knew, A, what it would do to you, but he also knew what it would do to others. He knew what it would do to you, that it would be a cancer to your soul, that it would, be, it would, it would destroy everything that it touched in your heart and in your life. Bert Gezi, a philosopher, said, resentment is like a poison that we carry around inside of us with the hope that when we get the chance, we can deposit it where it will harm another who has injured us. The truth is that we carry this poison around at an extreme risk to ourselves. The truth is we carry this poison around at an extreme risk to ourselves. You see, Jesus knew what Bergesi knew, which is the bitterness, if left unchecked for any amount of time, would be devastating to the soul and would ultimately render the soul, the heart, the mind useless. He knew what it would do to you. It doesn't belong there. But more than that, he also knew what it would do to others. He knew what your heart, if left unchecked, would do to others, considering for a moment that our mission in this world is to go and make disciples of all nations, balancing that with a text in, in Mark that tells us that all nations will hate us because they hated Jesus first, there'd be a tension there. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're not going to make up very much ground if you keep holding bitterness there. You're not going to get very far. That is, you'll find it incredibly difficult to impact a world that you do your best to avoid because of the anger that's in your heart, what you're harboring, what you're holding, what you're even using. Because if that anger even focused in a particular direction with those that you disagree with, remembering that those are the exact same people that Jesus says to love and to serve and to guide and to pray for. Those people are the reason that this church exists. He knew what it would do to others, what it would cost the world for you and I to hold on to that. But I think beyond that, Jesus kind of separates these two texts. There's really two sections. The first is the internal, if you have this, if you, if you have this in your heart. But then he gives a real-life application. He gives a real-life uh, implication of what, what actually would happen. Let's, let's walk this out a little bit and give an example of what, how, how much I really mean this. Before studying this passage this week, I, I think I would just be honest with you. I would tell you, here's my synopsis of the second part of this text. If you are loading the kids up in the van, you're coming to church, fixing an argument in the back seat, stopping at Starbucks to get the wrong drink, you get to church a little bit frustrated, you're getting the kids loaded in, somebody's already taking their shoes off, um, and it's just a mess, and you finally get settled down, and the music begins to play, and you begin to participate in worship, and you realize that you have anger towards your brother, towards someone in your life, then leave. Pack the kids back up. Go back home. Stop, don't stop at McDonald's because they didn't get it right the first time. Starbucks didn't either. Make sure everybody goes to bed, gets a nap, and just call it a day. That is that if I have anger in my heart towards someone, then it's better for me to not even present my offering. That's a great sounding scenario. That's a great summary, except it's not what Jesus said. 
That's the problem with that synopsis. It's not, it's not what Jesus said. It's not if I remember I have something against someone else. Look at it again, verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and here it is, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Well, that's a different game. Your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to him and then come and present your offering. So, it's not just about the anger that you might have in your heart. It's bigger than that. It's the anger and the bitterness that someone else might have against you. And the air left the room. It's about the point that it did for me too in my office this week. You see, for us, we have the privilege of having the holistic view of Scripture. In this day, they didn't have all of the canonized Bible that we have that we can see the whole picture. Uh, but we do. And we see several different places in Scripture um, where we're instructed to forgive. Colossians 3, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. In Mark 11, I mentioned this a moment ago, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father, so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Meaning that it is both the assumption and the expectation of God that believers will forgive others in the same way that Jesus forgave us. Quickly, freely, and consistently. It is the assumption. That's the standard. And Paul made that clear. Jesus made that clear all throughout the scripture. We see that being the agreed upon uh, measurement that you're going to forgive because why in the world would you not when you've been forgiven so much? So Jesus isn't spending time on what I feel in this text. He's not spending time because I know what I'm supposed to do with it. No, he's, he's speaking to how others might feel about me. This again reiterates how critically important it is for me to live in peace and in love with everyone around me. But I think it also reveals to us whose perception of our words and actions that Jesus is actually more concerned with. Whose perception of our words, our actions, the things that we say and do, is Jesus actually concerned with? And that brings a couple of interesting questions to mind. I know it does for me. Am I responsible for every single thing that someone might think about me? Am I really responsible to control everything they, they, they think about me? And, and if that's the case, do I just stop worshiping until I know for sure that no one in the world is upset with me? What, and if I'm not responsible for that, then what am I responsible for? Remembering that this text is part of a larger sermon, uh, I think it's helpful for us to move backward about 13 or 14 verses back to Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 9, to help us kind of figure out what Jesus is referring to here. In verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Notice the qualifier, not sin, but righteousness. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Again, notice the qualifier, falsely, not truly, falsely, on account of me. Again, a qualifier, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. He's saying, for, don't let your conscience, your heart, your mind, your soul be troubled towards guilt for their hostility if those circumstances are met. For your reward in heaven is great, for they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus says is that sometimes people will hold something against you unfairly. They, they, they will do that when they shouldn't. They'll insult you. They'll persecute you. Say all kinds of false and evil things about you. And what are you supposed to do with that? Do you stop worshiping? Do you stop going to church because people are upset with you? Well, that would have been hard for Jesus. Enough people are upset with him to kill him. He was polarizing from day one. So it can't be that the standard is if, if anyone's upset with you because then Jesus' harrowing words in, in John 15 where he says, the world will hate you, but bear in mind, it hated me first. In 20, Matthew 24, uh, you'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. He wouldn't say those things if we were always meant to agree with everyone around us. That's not what he's saying. So no, it cannot be that we're simply at the mercy of other people's opinions about us. We're not responsible for what other people might think about us unless it's true. Brian Houston once said, never pay attention to what people say about you unless it's true. Unless they have a point. Again, this is where I'm fighting with the Lord this week. No, you're not responsible for how they feel unless they might have a point. Unless you might have overstepped unless you might have carried yourself in a way that you thought was okay but again we mentioned a moment ago that Jesus is more concerned with the world's perception of of you because the world is who you're here to help save the world is who you're here to help point to Jesus so it matters how the world sees you and what that what that essentially means for for me people like me if you like me I just I get stuck in my ways sometimes and I have this thought of just the way I am and they can deal with it. It's just the way I am. If in my flesh, that's how I feel sometimes. Until I remember that Jesus died because I am the way that I am. The cross was necessary because you are the way that you are. But there's so the, the, basically the, the the question becomes: How do I know what I'm responsible for? Right. That's the tension in the room. How do how do I know where? where I, I need to take an action and, and where this person needs to take the action. And I think that this, this 9 through 12 gives us a filter. Verse 10 says, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Question, was my word or my action the thing in question righteous and pure? Or was it sinful and selfish? Verse 11, when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Question, is there any chance that what I'm being accused of might be true? They might have a point. That even if I, 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 I was right in what I said, I mishandled it. The hardest thing in the world to do is apologize when you were right. 
Been there. Welcome to marriage. When you mishandle something, you, you, you might have made the right point, won the argument, and in our case, as missionaries, will win the argument and lose the soul, as Adrian Rogers once said. Because if what is being said might be true, then well, you might have work to do. And then verse 11 at the very end, on account of me, the question, is it because of Jesus that I'm dealing with this, or is it because of me? Am I taking some sort of a stand here? Am I defending something? Am I, am I standing true to my beliefs, or is this just a fight that I picked? This, one, this one's more just up to me. But I think there's one more question, one more thing to consider as you measure your responsibility, as I measure my responsibility. Very simply this, do I have the power to change the situation? Do I possess the authority, not should the ball be in my court, but is it? Could it be? Apostle Paul spoke to this in Romans 12, verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but live among the lowly. And then these very pointed words, never think yourself wise in your own sight. Yikes. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then here's where he helps us with this. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the question becomes, what can I bring to the situation? Sure, it may not be all, only my fault. It may not be situ- maybe a situation with a sibling or with a parent or a, a spouse or an ex-spouse or a child or a neighbor or a friend, co-worker. It may not even be your fault. You may be able to answer all of those questions perfectly and say, you know what, I, I do have a righteous indignation. But then Paul comes back with a little bit of a right hook and says, so far as it depends on you. So the question, what, do I, what can I bring? What can I do? Can I bring humility? Can I offer grace? Can I bring deference or surrender? Can I bring a compassionate heart? It's a tough thing to consider. I I don't make any bones about it. I, I struggle with this too. I've got family members in my own life that I'm still kind of figuring out how the dynamics play out. I don't, as far as I can tell, I don't have any bitterness or hatred in my heart, but I, I know there's stuff, right? Because we're all fallen. We're all human, right? We're going to have stuff. So the final question we'll ask today, why does this matter so much? Why are you in my Kool-Aid right now? Why, why is your hand on my plate? Why, why does it really matter? Wouldn't it be way easier to just let bygones be bygones here? Sweep it under the rug, move on? Yes. I would prefer that. But I believe in a scripture that tells me to do differently. Why does it matter so much? What gives here? What difference would it make if we treated our, our relationships, our, our, our friendships, and our, our people around us, the problems we face? What, what difference would it make if we actually did this? We lived peaceably with all to the extent that we bring things to the table besides an opinion. If you just take a moment and look at the world that we live in today, 
As soon as I say that, whatever thought came into your mind, hold that one. Look at the world we live in today. For some, you've lived uh, long enough to remember a different time. Uh, I'm getting to the point, even though I'm 27 years old, where I can remember a different time too. And you look at the brokenness, the, 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 the disunity, the division, the tension that we see around us, the deep-seated hatred between different groups of people. It seems culture is shifting more drastically and quickly than ever before. But as I think about that, as you think about that, I want you to be reminded of a couple of things. Racial disunity was rampant in Jesus' day. Political tensions were a key contributor to him going to the cross. There was no shortage of unrest in society in Jesus' day. The days even leading up to his birth and his life. All sorts of chaos and mess. And what did God choose to do about it? Two things. He sent Jesus. And then he launched the church. Meaning that the church of Jesus Christ is the solution for the world today. He could have done anything. If he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and has complete authority on this earth, he could have done anything. But he launched and built the church. Meaning that we, whether the world realizes it or not, the church is what will minister to and ultimately point people to the only one who can rescue. But here's the point, church. If we are going to be that solution, then we have to choose to not be part of the problem. If we're really going to take on our responsibility to be that solution, we have to actively choose to not be part of the problem. It's not lost on me this morning that we, this, this text hits us in the middle of one of the most tense moments in our nation's history. It feels like you could just cut the tension in our country with a, with a butter knife. I, it's also, I, I do realize that we're 30-something days away from what is likely going to be the most polarizing election in our nation's history. I'm not here today to give you a political opinion. I believe that to be a misuse of my job and this platform, but... I do have a burden. I am the young buck on the team. I am the, by far the youngest, by far, guys. So <laughs> I do have gray hair. Uh, you can blame the Williams kids for that. Um, not bitter. Um, I'm by far the youngest on my team, meaning that I represent a demographic, a section of people that statistically is the most politically and culturally diverse. We're scattered. Not to say that every other generation is all unified, but mine is the one that you don't even, they don't even know what they believe on last Thursday versus today. <laughs> but what that means is that I've got lifelong friends who passionately disagree with me. Lifelong, not neighbors, lifelong friends that I was in diapers with that disagree, that don't see the world the way that I see the world. I've got family that are the same way. We've got neighbors on either side of us, one with one sign in the yard and one with the other. And all of them know that I love Jesus. 
All of them know that my home pursues godliness and that my home is a home that has people living in it who have trusted their lives to him. They know that. They're aware of that. And Catherine and I, in every home that we have ever lived in, whether it's been an apartment or a house or wherever we've lived, we have prayed before we've moved in that God would do, do something in our home. We, we moved in June of this year. And the night before we, we closed on our house, we were in the, in the kitchen and we just sat there and we're praying for our, our home. No furniture, nothing in the house. Don't even know if we were supposed to be in there. Sorry, Lynetta. Um, and so uh, we've, we prayed for several things, but one of the primary things we've always prayed for is that God would allow our home to be a safe place. Not a place where we can win the argument. We've never prayed for God to give us a chance to make our point, to just get our, our, our two cents in, but for God to give us the opportunity to make us a safe place, that we, Catherine and Graham, would be a safe place. And as we navigate difficult times in our country and what promises to be more in the future, can I tell you what my prayer for Clearview Baptist Church on Franklin Road is? It's that we'd be a safe place. We'd be a safe, we would pursue intentionally craft our, 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 our environments and our, our, our experiences to be a safe place, but more than that, not just our campus, our building, and our activities, but that our people, the actual church, would choose to be a safe place because it's in being that safe place that you earn what a friend of mine calls the relational equity to have the gospel conversation, to be able to, to, to minister and, and sit down across from someone and have a, a real heart-to-heart. -heart. But that doesn't happen on a Facebook post. There it is. It happens at the dinner table. That you would pursue to be a, a, intentionally make, make your life in a way that makes you a safe place because in a world, and we're closing here, in a world where it's so hard to know what to believe. Fake news everywhere. People say one thing and then other people say this. It's so hard to even know what to trust. But here's what I can trust and here's what I do know. The church of Jesus Christ cannot afford to be known by anything less than love. It cannot afford to be known by and understood and seen as anything less than compassionate. Our response to suffering cannot be skepticism, and our reaction to injustice cannot be indifference. And more than anything else, our commitments to our positions and opinions, not theological but personal, our, our, our commitment to our own opinions cannot be at the cost of our influence. And before you get your phone out to start the email, by the way, my email address is brian at clearview.org. <laughs> before you get the phone out, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say that we should make concessions and compromise the word of God. I didn't say that we should change our theology. We should just let it happen, lay down and take it. I did not say that because there's a significant difference between your opinion and God's word. 
So what I'm not talking about is that we should give up on certain things and just let it ride. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when it comes to choosing your personal preference or your neighbor, consider the one that Jesus died for. This, friends, is why it is so critically important for you and I as far as it depends on us to live peaceably in this house and in this world. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.